okay, there's a leader. I like how he leads. I'm going to just learn from him and I can be like him. And that's a that's a setup for failure, right? Because we can't. We have to start with who we are. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Today's interview is with Lisa Slayton, the executive director of the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation. She was a introduction from episode 242's guest, Darren Grove, the CEO and founder of TrueFit. Uh, you're going to see a lot of similarities, a lot of through lines between those two interviews if you check that, that one out already. Servant leadership, high level, lead by example, humility, these values that we all know to be powerful. We all noted them to be impactful, but to hear from someone who is just consistently interfacing with leaders, talking with them, coaching them, helping them be their best. Uh, I, I found this really powerful, really clarifying. And you can tell Lisa can just go and go and go on this topic. So I, I was really kind of sitting back and getting a lesson myself. Uh, I think that you'll be able to do the same. So here is my conversation with Lisa Slayton. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I guess start off by saying thank you so much for letting us invade your office and coming on the podcast. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me to be part of this. I'm really glad uh, that Darren connected us. He's a previous guest of the show. And what we often do when we're talking with people who are leading some company, organization, nonprofit, what have you is just start off in, in broad strokes explaining uh, what it is that you do and what your organization's focused on. Yeah, so uh, Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation uh, was founded in 1978, so we are celebrating our 40th anniversary this year, and we're going to extend that for a while. We're going to celebrate probably for the next 18 months or so uh, because there's a lot to celebrate. Um, we were founded in 1978 by a man named Reed Carpenter um, who deeply desired to create an organization that could function in, in some ways as an umbrella for the incubation of uh, <coughs> faith-based nonprofits and ministries that were serving the frontline needs in our community. So Reed was very gifted at kind of connecting leaders and need and resource to get something off the ground that was responding to a, a, a need or an issue in the city. And so we became an umbrella organization and really, you know, you wouldn't have called it that in 1978, but we were incubating social venture. Um, I, I actually found a, a fundraising brochure from the early 90s with Reed on the cover and the, the subtitle was venture capital for the common good. That was 25 years ago, uh, not language that you often heard then. And so in the early years, uh, a lot of the work that PLF did was focused on sort of starting these nonprofits and uh, getting them resourced. And in some cases, we provided backbone services and fiscal cover and 501c3 cover for a season while they got off the ground. Some of them lived with us for a long time uh, and, and only more recently in the last 10 years or so got commissioned off into independence. Um, and that was the model until the early 2000s. Uh, we were uniquely positioned as an organization that now had a network of kind of sister organizations around the country, other leadership foundations, to take advantage of um, the faith-based initiatives that came into being under President Bush in the early 2000s. 
And so there were lots of projects that were done around youth development and mentoring um, and housing projects and things like that that were done as collaborations with with leadership foundations in other cities. Um, But in the mid-2000s, Reed had gone off to run the national network and a new leader had come in, my predecessor, a man named John Stalwart. And he was very committed to and energized by the idea of working with leaders themselves. And so the the board and the organization made a pretty significant shift away from sort of the running of nonprofits and the management and the starting of nonprofits to really investing in leaders themselves. And we also recognized, John was astute and, and realized that if the mission of the organization, which was always, I mean, we've used different language over the years, our current language is to equip, connect, and mobilize leaders from all sectors for the flourishing of the city, for the cultivation and restoration of the city. If that's our goal, if that's what we're about, then we can't just work with nonprofit leaders. Um, we also have to be deeply invested in working with leaders in other sectors. And so the next place that we focused our attention was in the business community. And we began to really invest in leaders in that space. And that's when I joined the organization uh, in 2005. John invited me to come on board to help shape a leadership offering that would be kind of unique to what was going on in Pittsburgh. And so I spent the first few months doing what you do when you're hopefully, sometimes not everybody does this, sometimes they jump right in. But uh, but we benchmarked, did a lot of research, looked at looked at leadership initiatives from around the country. Um, and we had, we, we, it became clearer and clearer that we had three criteria that we were paying attention to in those early years. Um, the first was that that uh, we are a Christian organization, and so we explicitly wanted our program based on uh, biblical principles, and that demonstrated uh, uh, the kind of leadership that Jesus lived out in his ministry and life and work uh, on earth. The second was that we were explicitly focused on the flourishing of the city, so it wasn't just leadership for leadership's sake, it was leadership for a bigger purpose um, for the flourishing or the common good of, of the city. And then the final piece was this understanding that leaders in many cases, not always, but in many cases, come to a place in their own leadership journey where they've accomplished uh, some some very good things, um, but they find themselves a little isolated. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they may have peers who are leading other organizations, but there's kind of a, a bravado that goes on. And so when you're dealing with real painful issues, it's hard to find that sense of community. And so part of the purpose of the Leaders Collaborative is to create a safe space for leaders to come in and and be with one another and work with the real stuff um, that's going on in their lives and in their work and in their leadership. And so those were, I'll, I'll call them our three differentiators at the moment. We, we, we were explicitly going to follow the leadership of Jesus. We were focused on the flourishing of the city, and we cared about building community for leaders. Um, and so we went to work, and we looked at lots of uh, models out there. Um, and I read a quote recently that I found um, found very interesting. It's The quote comes from, can't think the guy's name is George Box, and he said, all models are useless, some are helpful. Uh, and I, I tend to agree with that. The tendency is to want to find a model because it's easier and try and plug it into your environment. Um, and that sometimes works, but most times it doesn't. So if you can learn from models and then, then adapt them and, and really customize them to your own particular need, that's probably a better approach. But we looked at lots of models 
models um, around the country, and there were none that were, were really a bullseye for all three of these. And so I came back after several months and said to John, you know, if we're going to do this, I think we have to design it. I think we have to build it ourselves. And so we went into a process for the next year. Uh, this was late 2005, early 2006. And we spent the next year in development, um, really thinking through what is it that we wanted to accomplish. And w we had a couple fundamental, I'll call them guiding principles. The first was um, that leadership begins with who you are, not what you do. So it's easy to look outside of oneself and say, okay, there's a leader. I like how he leads. I'm going to just learn from him and I can be like him. And that's a that's a setup for failure, right? Because we can't. We have to start with who we are. So we knew when we were building what became this initiative called the Leaders Collaborative that it would start with a very strong element of helping the leader, him or herself, get very, very clear on who they are and correspondingly, and maybe more importantly, who they're not. Because one of the challenges that we, we saw often with leaders who were coming to us was that they were, uh, as, as my colleague Rick describes them, overextended but sub-optimized. So very busy, lots on their calendar. But when they really looked at all the activity, they were realizing that only a very small percentage of it was deeply satisfying to them. And really, they were working out of their best selves, right? And so, but we recognize that if we help them get to that place of a clear understanding of who they are and who they're not, we'll call that calling. Uh, and we do a lot of work uh, around uh, calling and vocation uh, in our coaching work and in our in our leadership programs, then the next step is that they're going to have to build relationships because if you're going to be effective, you have to have people who are really good at stuff that you're not, right? So how do you start to build effective teams? Uh, we, we often say there's no such thing as a well-rounded leader, only a well-rounded leadership team. And so the really good leaders, the really effective leaders are super clear about who they are and who they're not. And then they invest in and empower a team around them to do the things that they, they are not uniquely gifted or wired to do. And that's, that's where you get, you know, sort of the leadership to the nth power, right, is when, when a team like that is humming along. They're very rare. Um, I'm I'm lucky because I have Hannah and she has this completely complementary skill set yeah. to me. And that's, I mean, that self-awareness is a huge part of the journey. Yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off. But yeah. as you were giving that answer, there was these kind of two storylines that I see going side by side. And what you started off was explaining the history of the Leadership Foundation, explaining the history in which you're, you're being a historian, you're being something of an anthropologist, like Absolutely. understand the roots of this organization, where it's been, so you can understand where it's going. Yeah. And simultaneously, you start talking about the leadership value of knowing yourself. Yeah. And what that is more or less doing is an internal form mm -hmm. of history and anthropology. Where That's did right. I come from? What do I have? What am I comprised of yep. so that I can figure out how to implement myself in the best way possible. And I think that's a really interesting, you, you almost demonstrated your yeah. own competency in this while uh, illustrating how it can be valuable for leaders. Yeah. I, it's interesting. Um, my, my undergraduate degree, uh, which I never quite finished, but did most of the coursework for, was in cultural anthropology. And uh, the, you know, my early career was in the business world. And, you know, my parents were like, anthropology, what in the world are you thinking? Um, 
But I, found, I have found that it has served me very well, and particularly in the work that I've been doing for the last 15 or 20 years, I often think of myself as an organizational anthropologist, right? So I'm going in and really paying attention to what's going on in a culture um, inside an organization, and that's where we do a lot of our work these days. So, but it does, you're right, start with the, the anthropology of the, of the person, right? So who am I? How am I uniquely made and wired? Um, there's a theological underpinning that we put under that in, in when we work in certain environments and in our leaders collaborative program uh, because we believe it very clearly that God made each person uniquely and wonderfully as a bearer of his image to, to co-create with him in the world. And I could go down a theological rabbit trail, but I'll, I, I won't do that. But it's very important to understand, you know, the human anthropology. And I think it's one of the places where in our culture, we've really lost our way. Um, we're very attached to archetypes and uh, models and celebrities that we believe are, if I could only be like that, if I could only do it like that person does, if I just had a little bit of that. And when we do that, we're, we're doing a disservice to ourselves, and we're also doing a disservice to the people around us. Um, the language we have been using for the last number of years around this is stewardship. And stewardship is, is kind of an old-fashioned word. It's often related to financial campaigns and things like that. But the Greek word for stewardship is, is oikonomia, which means the management of the house. And so the first part of the house you have to manage is yourself, right? Um, and so, so the question that we ask all the time is how are you stewarding yourself? How are you, how, you, how are you stewarding the resource that you have that's in your human person? We often think of the resources that we have as what we have in our pockets, um, our financial resources, our access, our networks. But if we don't start with ourselves, then we've externalized things in a way that that is not grounded. So it's it's a, it demonstrates a lack of integrity, actually. To to better understand that, I almost want to hold that up against. You mentioned the archetypes, yeah, and and maybe to get more clarity. So so I guess maybe a little of my background will be helpful. One of the books that I read last year that was most impactful for me is a book called King Warrior Magician Lover, mm. which is an illustration of the different components of the masculine archetype that throughout history, you know, when they're in balance is a way of thinking about a complete person. And the king is someone who's not afraid to leave is, is, you know, tied to service of others. Mm -hmm. There's, there's, there's the, the bad manifestation of that, which is maybe the tyrant or the weakling. Mm -hmm. But in between that, there's this person who uses strength to yep. serve, to guide, to, to provide value to. And, and I can go, on down the rabbit hole. So can you talk about maybe in more clarity, given just that I've talked about like that in the mm -hmm. past on the show, the bad archetypes that people might sure. be tied to that they're, that might be leading them astray and, and maybe that distinction, if that's helpful. Yeah. Um, I, you know, if you walked into my office, which you're welcome to do, um, I have, you know, hundreds of books on my bookshelf and, uh, you know, probably 20% of them have something to do with leadership. And there are lots of people who are, are, have done very good work and some very helpful work and they tend to want to create an, a leadership archetype. So, um, you know, I joke, I have the, you know, the resonant leader, the primal leader, the, the you know, the, the, um, servant leader, the, 
uh, the steward leader. There's a bunch, you know, yeah. and, and all of those are helpful. But if we try and look at a list of attributes or characteristics from an archetype like that, um, we're setting ourselves up for failure because we haven't paid attention first and foremost to who we are. And we have to lead out of who we are, not out of some model. Now, it doesn't mean you can't grow and develop and and steward yourself around some of these characteristics, um, but it's it's not helpful to put create create a structure or a framework that you're pointing towards and saying I want to be if I if I'm like that then I've achieved the goal. Um, probably the most people most people wouldn't necessarily describe it this way, but I think the leadership archetype that we're we've been most attached to in our Western culture is the heroic leader, the charismatic leader. Right. So that's the leader who's got a big, uh, you know, a big voice, a big name. Um, people love to follow them. For some reason, they're often willing to turn a blind eye to the shadow side of that leader because there always is one. Everyone has a shadow side. Um, but they they get in a room and the room lights up and you get very energized because they have they have this presence. Right. Um, and they're they're often figureheads um, and some of them are actually not particularly effective when it gets down to the actual business of leading, but they have this presence and people want to follow them. And I think we're very enamored with that. I don't know if you are familiar with the interview uh, and, and this, there was a moment when this became very real in our country and it was the the interview that was done in the, I think it was the 19th, it would have been 1959 or around 1959, which was uh, an interview between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Okay. And it was the first, one of the first times that an interview was on TV and JFK had makeup and, yeah. and Nixon, and didn't Nixon looked haggard and gray. And so the people who listened on the radio said, hands down, Nixon won the yep. debate. But the people who watched it on TV said, hands down, JFK won the debate. Right. And so in, in that moment, that's, we'll call it a pivotal moment, uh, things shifted in our in our public arena around because we now had this new medium in which to experience people that was very, very different. And we were starting to make judgments and evaluations about their effectiveness based on their appearance and their charism rather than the substance of who they were or as part it may be in, included with this, the substance of who they are. And I think it's I think we've seen, you know, without going down a, a political trail that I think isn't helpful, I think we've seen that people are attached over and over again to the big personalities. And those are the archetypes that we look to for leadership. Um, when Jim Collins did his landmark wo work uh, in the book Good to Great back in the early 2000s, um, he, he instructed his team, he was looking making a comparison between good companies and great companies and what made the great companies great. And there was a set of criteria, some of it was financial and over time, you know, he had a lot of, of benchmarks that they were paying attention to. And he said to his team when he sent them out, um, and here's the deal, I don't want you to come back and tell me that this has anything to do with a leader. He said, I don't believe it. Good, great companies are great because there are lots of people doing amazing work. It cannot be uh, one person who's making a difference. 
And so they went out and they did their research and they came back and they locked arms and they said to Jim, sit down, we have something to tell you. And they discovered that indeed there was a leadership answer to the company, the differentiator between the good companies and the great companies. Um, but they said, it's not what you think. And he said, okay, prove it to me. And he's, they said, well, to a company, the leaders who were leading these companies demonstrated a particular kind of leadership. And the language that Collins used in his book was a level five leader. And it corresponds to some other leadership models, but the, the level five leader is the one who is demonstrating simultaneously and intention, uh, these two things live in tension, is fierce resolve and will, purpose, right, with deep humility, right? So absolutely committed to the purpose and, and, and mission of whatever it is that they're focused on, but deeply humble. So always giving credit away, always giving credit away, and always taking responsibility, whether it's theirs or not, when things go wrong. Now, most of the leaders we see who are these big charismatic leaders are quite the opposite of that. They're always blaming someone else when things go wrong, and they're always taking credit for that which is good when things go right. And uh, somehow, yet, we're, we're drawn as humans to Jim Collins' leader, the level five leader, um, but we're somehow get captivated and enamored by the heroic or archetype, the charismatic archetype of a leader who typically lacks integrity. It's almost like a biological hack, yeah. right? Like it, it looks right yeah. or it sounds right or it makes me feel right. Yeah. But when the rubber meets the road, the is this what's going to get, is this the person that's going to get the yeah. results? Is this the person that I trust to get it done and do it right? And with that high integrity, like you yeah, said, I think absolutely. that's really powerful. So there's kind of two questions here and they're, they're big. I'm trying to figure out how to maybe package them in, into a, a neat little idea here, which is on, on one side, you know, level one, level two, level three, level four, level five, to at a cursory glance implies that it is in some way completely achievable when I don't think that that's something that you would suggest. I th I'm, I'm guessing that you would say um, le great leadership, almost like success is a moving target. Mm -hmm. Like you get one and you're like, oh, I, there's another yeah. thing over there to go go receive. And to me, that idea is tied to the notion that leadership is a learnable skill and that there isn't necessarily something innate. I could be innately charismatic. I could be innately some of these other mm -hmm. qualities. You're tall, that like helps yeah. or whatever. Would you argue that it is inherently learnable? Is there some aspects that are not learnable? How, how do you think about that? Um, that's a great question, and I don't. Um, I'd love to be able to put it in a neat little package, but I don't yeah. think it actually works that way. I think you really have to pay attention to to the makeup of of each individual person. So if the if the fundamental argument, which I'll hold to, is that leadership begins with who you are, almost anyone can lead in some way, shape, or form. So there there are lots of people who would say uh, everyone's a leader right? Because leader at its most fundamental definition is an influence relationship. So, so I'm always, there's, there are always people in my circle that I'm influencing in one way or another, could be good or could be bad, but I'm influencing them. And in turn, they're influencing me. So they're demonstrating leadership. And I think at one level, that's, that's fine. But I think it's terribly incomplete. Leadership is, there's a science to it. Um, but but there's also a mystery to it. And the the best leaders, I think, are are always learners. So they're also good followers. 
So in some aspect of their life, they're following. They always have mentors um, and they recognize that they're not going to get it right all the time. So while you might want to try and hit a target, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. One of, the, one of our principles is that you're going to get the results you want based on what you're paying attention to and where you're focusing your intent. And the primary discipline of the of high performance is attention and intention, right? So you see this in high performing athletes, where they're putting their attention and how they're being intentional about what they're doing, that drives them to results, right? Um, and they're, they're creative, their things are happening, good things are happening. When they get distracted, that's when things go awry. And so I do think there's discipline to it and there's there, it's that you can develop. And that said, there are, I have worked with hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people who, some of whom would simply say, I'm willing to influence in my environment, but at the end of the day, I am really best made as a great contributor, right? Or a great uh, subject matter expert. And they are leading in some way out of that, but they may not hold any kind of leadership office, right? And one of the dangers that you see in, in organizations all the time, and this is, it, it's almost, you know, it's almost textbook is, that an organization has a great sales team and they need a new sales manager and the immediate response is, oh, well, let's go take Jim because Jim's our star performing salesperson. So that means he'll absolutely make a great sales manager. And it's like it rarely works out that way because what's needed to make a star salesperson is very different than what's needed to make a great sales manager, someone who can lead a team and manage a team. In some cases, it's actually maybe not your, you know, you want, a, you want someone who understands the, the competencies of, of a good salesperson to be your sales manager but they don't always have to be the best salesperson. They have to be able to coach and develop and, and have a team perform very well. And you could apply that logic to almost any single discipline. So it's not necessarily a translation that everyone can, can lead. That said, with intention and with an openness, a humility, a teachable spirit, you can develop yourself into, into effective leadership. It may not look exactly like the archetype, right? So yeah, it, it, there, is a, there is a way to, leadership can be learned. There's the old argument, are leadership's born or made, right? Um, and I say yes, you know, <laughs> I, I don't, I think it's not helpful. It's a false dichotomy. Like it, there are some people who naturally and intuitively can step into leadership roles without a lot of developmental work. But I think you find if you looked very closely at their lives, they actually are doing the developmental work. It just may not be visible to most of us in how they're doing. They're very disciplined in how they take on their responsibilities as a leader. I've taken a lot of my leadership lessons from my experience as an athlete in sports. Yeah. And what you alluded to that like the best salesman doesn't necessarily make the best leader or sales trainer or something like that is, you know, I, I watch a ton of basketball and one of the parallels is that often the best coaches are these guys that weren't the biggest, they mm -hmm. weren't the best, but why they maybe went further than other people with their physical limitations did is because they had to outthink the game. They yeah. had to outstudy. And because of their over indexing on that perspective allows them to, you know, they've, they've mixed it up and been with these top performers. They have some degree of credibility and experience at that level, but it was much more reliant upon their communication, their mind, mm -hmm. their analytical skills, as opposed to just being the biggest, fastest, tallest, strongest That's guy. That's right. Yeah. I, 
Or girl. Yeah. Girls too. Yeah. I had an interesting sort of memory. This will date me, but um, watching the Olympics this year, my husband and I had our first date uh, in 1980 during the Miracle hockey team. And that's a classic example of, you know, a, a coach who was underrated and a group of, you know, sort of raggy shaggy players from who no, nobody ever thought could do anything. And it, it's a it was a for those of you who remember it, it was a perfect demonstration of exactly what you're talking about. It was how they came together, how they learned to to deeply know themselves, but know their teammates, how they how the coach in, you know, not just inspired them, because that's inspiration is gone in a flash but really focused their attention. And, you know, there was a lot of discipline that went into what they did. And, but he had a way of bringing out the best in every player, and also cohering them as a team. So it's one thing to create a great individual performer. It's another thing to be able to cohere them as a team. And uh, so organizations have, you know, over the last couple of decades adopted the language of team. So everybody's on a team, right? And, and, and there's, you know, maybe they have a, a manager, a supervisor, a team leader, whatever you want to call it. And most of them don't have a clue what it means to actually build a team. You can put people with complementary competencies together to work together, and that's what they're doing. They're working together. It's a work group, but it's not a team. And if you've played on a team, you know the difference, right? If five guys go out on a basketball court and they're all really good in their individual way, but they're all doing their own thing all the time, they're never going to win, right? Well, it's the same with a team in a business environment or in a nonprofit environment. But yet we think, okay, you know, Piper, you're on this team and add Jim to that team. And okay, now we got a team, go rock and roll. But no one's actually investing in them. There's that's where really effective leadership comes in. And there's a management component to it as well. Management and leadership I define a little differently. But both are needed for a team to get to the place of high performance. And and it it's a deep investment in themselves, not for self you know, kind of navel gazing, but really knowing who they are and where, what their very best is and how they can bring their best. And then in, and then also knowing every member of their team as well as they possibly can so that they can bring the best out in their team members. That's a high performing team that doesn't happen very often. And if you look at that kind of team, look for the leader, because that's a leader who has, has absolutely uh, humbled themselves and is given it all to the team and taking none of the credit and absolutely investing in the capacity of each individual person and the whole. That makes sense. We don't have too much more time yeah. here with you, but I, I'm, I feel like I'm learning a lot and I'm, I know the audience is going to be fired up by all this. As we aim towards our last couple questions, one of the last things I kind of want to chop up with you a little bit, given your fluency in anthropology, uh, yeah. the word culture oh in general, it, it's big, it's messy. There could be 10,000 things right, 10,000 things wrong. So we're not going to completely put a bow on it here. But to people who are listening, maybe they're in a leadership role, maybe they're part of the team and the culture of their company, team, nonprofit, whatever organization they're part of, isn't right where they want it to be and they want to be that that broader definition of a leader of anyone with influence they want to they want to help influence the culture of their group to be in a better place what would be some considerations or next steps or ideas that you would throw their way yeah 
there's a ton I could say about culture, um, and that's, you know, we do a lot of work inside organizations helping them to build effective and healthy cultures. <clears throat> but for the for the sake of brevity and, and for your audience, I'll say there's one primary thing I would pay attention to. Culture, and this comes from the disciplines of sociology and anthropology and the study of cultures. Culture, at, at its most sort of fundamental, is the way that a group of people make decisions and resolve differences Okay, so so if you're on a team that's not functioning very well, look at how they make decisions together. Look at how they resolve conflict. Okay, if the decision making is everybody fighting for position and opinion, it's not a healthy culture. If the decision making is focused on kind of what matters most or what's the goal or what are we trying to accomplish and everyone is giving input based on a a shared understanding of the outcome, you're going to get cohesion, right? Because even though they may not agree, if they're pointing at the same goal, then there's a way that they could come together. So it's not, I'm not pitting my opinion against your opinion. I'm saying, here's my input based on what we're trying to accomplish. And inevitably what happens when you have people that can do that without kind of ramping up or trying to convince the other person that theirs is the right way to think, if they can just share their their perspective, you know, what I see, here's what I see, and you share what you see, now something new usually emerges. And that's actually where innovation occurs. So it's getting people to let go of the need to convince the other person to, to see it their way and to really lean in and um, gain shared perspective. And out of that shared perspective or understanding comes a new way of doing things. And really effective teams do that without even thinking about it. Now, we have processes that we use and methodologies that we teach people around that because it's not something that usually happens just intuitively. But it comes out of actually the work of an anthropologist who studied how how healthy cultures were functioning in a lot of different settings. So not just in the in the West, but in developing countries in South America and other places. And at the end of the day, it was how they resolved, reconciled differences and, and made decisions together. Um, and inevitably, they were looking at what's best for the common good. What's best, what's the best thing for everyone here? And everyone released their own attachment and was able to come to some sort of, of common shared understanding of what needed to happen. And that's what makes a healthy culture. Most teams don't do that. And decision-making, I, I mean, I think it's apparent if we were to say it that like good decision-making or a good decision-making process is incredibly valuable. But when you were even saying that, I was kind of racking my own brain. And where my mind goes to is Ray Dalio and Bridgewater, one of the most successful hedge funds of all time, having this amazingly clearly defined, detailed decision-making process on their investment decisions. Or recently we interviewed Ned Renzi at Birchmere Ventures mm-hmm. and how like we, he went in-depth and they have a very clear process of how they make an investing decision. It's also partially because those are higher stakes relative to what some other people may be dealing with, but it's also a part of how they got there in the first place that they think and, and have so much consideration for their decision-making process. And and I would say if you, I don't know what you discovered when you walked into their decision-making process, but usually what sits underneath any sort of a decision-making matrix are very clear, very well-defined core values. So as an investment company, these are the things that matter most to us. And then we, we layer our decision-making process on top of that. So, you know, if you were to talk to, quote unquote, a socially responsible investment company, they have some very clearly defined 
defined values about what they are going to invest in and what they're not going to invest in, right? And then from there, they can look at a whole bunch of criteria. I um, I remember talking years ago to a man named Julian Robertson, who started Tiger uh, Capital Management, Tiger Venture in New York. And I said to him, you know, what what do you look for? when you're looking at an investment. And he, he said something similar to what you've just described. Well, we have a grid we look at, but at the end of the day, he said, I'll take a good idea with a well-formed cohesive team over a great idea with a bunch of e egotistical, you know, puffed up people. So, cause the good idea will go, f he said, I don't care how great the idea is. If the team isn't coherent. And for them, that was a fundamental decision-making criteria. Now, obviously, they had lots of other things that they looked at in terms of product and marketability and all the things you look at, but that was a core operating principle for how they chose who they would even take a next step with. And so for them, it started in some very informal environments, looking at how this team that was trying to get them to invest in their product or service was functioning together. He said, you can tell a lot about people, you know, in, in a lunch meeting with some uncomfortable questions and you know so they they really were looking at the the human dynamic of it as almost more of a priority than the product or service now i i don't know if every venture company does it that way but julian robertson had a pretty good track record and so i i look at someone like that and think that's fascinating to me that the team mattered more to him than the product yeah well i love the work that you're doing Thank for you. the different teams around the city and, and beyond and uh definitely want to encourage people to not only take notes on what they've just listened to, but, but to pair this with episode 242 and Darren Grove, where sure. he talked also about that stage five leadership and, mm -hmm. and servant leadership and all that other stuff. So thank you so much for taking the time yeah. to be here. If people want to connect with you, learn more about what you're doing, where can we direct people to learn more in the digital world? Um, yeah, so plf.org um, is our website. Uh, you can find us on Facebook um, at Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation and um, Twitter. I think we're PGH Leadership. Um, so I'll verify that with you. And I, th I think we have two or three different Twitter handles, so I never remember. Sorry. It's all good. We will find all the correct links and we will collect them in the show notes for this episode. Okay. Goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast is going to be the place to find those for this and every episode of the show. But as we do at the end of each interview, Lisa, I want to give you the mic a final time to issue a challenge to the audience. Yeah, so um, it's a great question. And I think the challenge I would issue is, um, you know, look at your calendar for tomorrow and really assess how you're stewarding the person that you're made to be. Are you expending your energy and your time and your resources in the very best way? Or is your calendar filled with things that are good things, but not necessarily the best things for you to do? So how are you stewarding yourself? How are you stewarding the resource that, that's, that's in you? That's the very most important thing you can be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. I love that. I, I don't know if it was a previous guest or just some other piece of media that I've consumed, but it was a very similar challenge of like, look at where you're spending your money and where you're spending your time. And that's where your priorities actually are. And right. you can think your priorities over here, but they're actually over there when you look at the, the data and get that feedback. So love that's that. True. Thank you. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. Yeah. Uh, we just went deep with Lisa Slayton. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day.
Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I hope that you had some leadership lessons to take away from that interview and that you're thinking a little bit differently about how you might be a leader, whether you're explicitly in a role or might just be trying to lead by example as the member of a team and continue to impact the culture of your organization. If you have questions, further questions, I encourage you to reach out to Lisa. Also encourage you to check out some of the recent This Is Piper vlog episodes in which we went a little bit deeper with Lisa and you get to see a little bit of the behind the scenes of setting up those podcast interviews. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you on the next episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.